This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, you have set your spirit upon your Son, and through your Son you have set your spirit upon us. Would you enable us this morning to receive the good news by the power of that same Spirit which makes Jesus present to us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So today is the next to last Sunday of Epiphany Tide. It's also in our calendar called World Mission Sunday. So I don't want to miss that emphasis. And we are rapidly approaching Lent, but we don't want to turn there yet. We want to continue to meditate in Epiphany Tide on the light that has come to Israel in Christ, but which has overspilled the banks of Israel and gone to all the nations. The fact that we are worshiping here together today in America is a miracle. It is a miracle that we have intimacy with the God of Israel through Jesus Christ. Don't miss that this morning. As Isaiah says beautifully of the suffering servant of the Lord in chapter 49, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's what we celebrate here this morning and every morning when we gather as the community of Christ. When Jesus stood up in the temple and opened the scroll and read from chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, which we also read this morning, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. From that point onward, his followers have known that Jesus was the suffering servant. They knew that Isaiah saw him. They saw how how all that God had done in Israel was to prepare the way of the Lord for him. And they saw that not just Israel, but the nations would be redeemed in him. They saw that Jesus was beautifully giving a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and that he was binding up all who mourn. That is what his whole ministry was about. John tells us, after quoting from the most well-known suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, he says this, Isaiah said all of this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Could not be more explicit than that. Isaiah saw that in the servant, the brightness of God's work in Israel would show forth brightly. And as it says in chapter 60, that nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, that Israel would be surprised and shocked because the nations that had dwelt in the darkness of idolatry and adultery and murder would come to rebuild the walls of Israel. They would come and serve Israel of Jerusalem. He says, your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. Hey, the the nations would bring their offerings and place them on the altar of the Lord and they would be received. That's what would happen in the servant. And the apostles saw Jesus foretold in the servant. Beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to describe the servant of God 
which in all of Scripture is Israel. Israel was privileged above all the nations to be in intimate communion with the living God, who was unlike the dead and dumb idols of the nations. You heard that in Psalm 96, right? All of the idols of the nations are nothing. Only Israel knows the living God. Only Israel has the privilege of being in communion with that living God. And Isaiah mocks these idols of the nations over and over again. But Israel turns away from this vocation over and over again. So God lets them be taken into to exile. And the glorious city, the city of peace, Jerusalem, is destroyed. Israel is in the darkest night of soul. It seems like God has abandoned them. They are prisoners. They are destitute. They are brokenhearted. And I wonder, have you been there? Are you there this morning? If you are in Christ, then hear the words of Isaiah to you. Take comfort, my people. Israel, I will not forget you. God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. That word is for us this morning, just as much as it was for Israel then. If you belong to Jesus, these are the Lord's words for you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. But you see, Israel, the servant of God, had a problem. Israel was unrighteous. Righteousness and justice were far from them. There was no one there who did what was right, not even one. God's promise cannot be fulfilled because there is no one in Israel who can fulfill this vocation. And if there is no righteousness even in the servant Israel, then there is absolutely no hope for the nations either. No hope for us who were outside of this covenant. But God would not let his covenant with Israel be annulled. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And so beginning in chapter 49, Isaiah sees and begins to proclaim that from within the servant of God, Israel, a single representative who is the true servant of God would emerge, who would bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. And from the beginning, Christians have understood this single representative as Jesus. Isaiah is cited over 400 times on the pages of the New Testament. If you're counting, that's over once per page. The glory of Jesus shines forth so brightly in the person of the servant that Christians in all centuries have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. Glory and light. Those are the themes that are sounded whenever Isaiah talks about the servant. And those are the themes not only of the second half of Isaiah, but of the gospel of John. What is Jesus? The light of the world. The light of has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I've already mentioned that when John quotes Isaiah, he says explicitly that Isaiah said what he said because he saw the glory of Jesus. And that word glory, the biblical scholar Richard Bauckham says, ought to be translated as visible splendor. Visible splendor. He saw the visible radiance, the splendor, the beauty, the luminescence of Jesus. He saw that Jesus was the light of the world, the light that is coming into the darkness that the darkness has not overcome. In Greek, the words for beauty and calling are very similar to one another. The word beauty 
is kalan. And the word calling is kalun. You see? The early Christians who spoke Greek made a whole lot out of this connection. They made much of it as they spoke to one another of the glory of Jesus. And they made much of it in their evangelism. Jesus' glory, his visible splendor is attractive. It is beautiful. That beauty calls to us. It beckons us to come near. Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, though, that he had nothing in his outward appearance that would attract us. He was poor. He was lowly. He was rejected and despised by all humankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was held in low esteem by everyone. But as the early Christians meditated upon the life and death of Jesus, they saw that he possessed, despite all of the outward ugliness, an inner beauty, a moral beauty that radiated outward and took an instrument of shame and torture and indeed a symbol of the worst that human beings can do to one another and made it instead into a beautiful and beloved symbol of hope. As Richard Villa de Sao says, the crucifixion as murder was ugly, but the beauty is that of the divine love abasing itself to raise up humanity. An interior luminescence, an interior radiance, that's what Jesus possessed, and it went forth from him and set the world on fire. Come to Jesus. He is glorious. He is splendid. He is radiant in his character. He is not arrogant, but humble. He is not foolish, but wise. He is not rebellious against God, but obedient to the vocation that has been given to him as the servant. In Jesus, a new kind of glory flashes forth upon the earth. A beauty that says, as in Isaiah 55, Come all you who are thirsty and come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. As the early theologians of the church loved to say, in Jesus is revealed a whole new way of being human, which is really what humanity was created to be in the beginning, but was not able to be because of sin. Jesus' glory is a glory that is sought not in dominating others, not in conquests, not in exploits, not in the building up of vast material acquisitions, not in verbal prowess, not in physical experience or prowess, All of the ways that people have sought glory throughout the centuries are revealed for what they are in Jesus. Not light, but darkness. Glory is revealed instead in this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we are healed. I wonder, do you need healing this morning? What are the wounds that you are bringing into this congregation today? And are you struggling to believe that Jesus can heal them? I know, just like you do, that Jesus lets our loved ones die. We have lost so many, and so many we love are now sick. If anyone doubts that God has has seen this, so do I. But this is not whistling in the dark. I do not yet see all things in subjection to Jesus. But I see Jesus. I see his glory. 
I see his radiance shining forth and his splendor proclaimed in the fifth gospel of Isaiah. I see Jesus the healer and his beauty calls to me. The Lord keeps all of our tears in a bottle. He sees every wound and he will bind them up because he is the healer. Look at what he promises us. Death is coming for us all. Our lives are short and everything is passing away. But Jesus is not passing away. Death no longer has dominion over him because he died to defeat death and he was raised again to live forever. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if we belong to him, we will be raised with him. Jesus' beauty calls to us in his character. He is a healer and he will bind up every wound. He will give us beauty for ashes and joy for mourning. And his beauty calls to us not only in his healing, but in the comprehensiveness of that healing. The comprehensiveness of the shalom that he promises to bring to the world. The servant heals our hearts, the deepest sources in us of hatred and of lust and idolatry. By his wounds we are healed. And he breathes his Holy Spirit upon us just as he does to his disciples so that we might grow up into the measure and stature of Christ. Remember what he says in John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he comes to us by sending his Holy Spirit so that we might grow up into the measure and the stature of Christ. So that we might become, as Luther said so powerfully, little Christ to one another and to the world. The Lord heals us in our loneliness and in our isolation. He is a father to the fatherless. He settles the lonely in families. And he uses us to do this for each other. We must be this to one another. That's how we will continue to believe and to trust that this gospel is real. And that's how the world will believe too. That's how this gospel will go forward to all the nations. When they see Jesus living by the Spirit in you and me and the way we bear one another's burdens, they will know. Community groups exist at Ascension for this purpose, that we might gaze upon Christ together and that we might bear one another's burdens. If you're not part of one, I want to urge you now to join one. You can come and talk to me anytime about that. The Lord heals our loneliness by giving us to each other as the family of God. Jesus heals relationships and loneliness, but he also heals systems. It is a comprehensive healing that Jesus brings into the world. I tell you, there is no comprehensive social, agenda, social justice agenda that is proclaimed in the world today that is like these latter chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 58, go home and read it. It makes clear that the Lord wants us to fast, but that true fasting would be this, not simply to abstain from food, but to let that abstention point us to its true meaning to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of every yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, not just to abstain from food, but to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, your own humanity that is visible in your neighbor. When that happens... 
when redemption comes comprehensively like that, then you know redemption has come. Then the people of God will sing hallelujah to the Lord and the world will turn and they will know that he is the only living God, that money and sex are nothing, but Jesus is everything. Isaiah says there in chapter 58, when this happens, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And in our reading from this morning, the spirit of the Lord is upon the servant to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in this context, he is clearly, clearly reaching back to the year of Jubilee that is described in Leviticus 25. And in the year of Jubilee, it says there, everyone is to return to their own property. This year was to be a reset on social relationships, a year which enabled no one in Israel to remain permanently poor and for cycles of generational poverty to be broken. The year of Jubilee is good news to the poor, and Isaiah is saying, when the servant comes, it is a Jubilee. My friends, do we long for this kind of healing? Do we want to see it come in Pittsburgh? Do we want the redemption of Jesus, not just to break the chains that are in our hearts, but the chains that are in our society? Do we want to see it come and break cycles of generational poverty? How fortuitous. It's almost like an unseen hand is guiding our lives. That this weekend, we should be reading Isaiah 61 together and that there should also be a conference held by the CCO called Jubilee. The point of that conference in many ways has always been to help college students and professionals to see the comprehensiveness of God's redemption. God's healing changes hearts and in changing hearts it changes relationships. It changes workplaces. It changes institutions. It changes societies. Yesterday at Jubilee, Mother Tish gave a powerful talk on the fall in which she named what she called several both ands of sin and of the fall. The first one is this. Sin is pervasive. It is both personal and systemic. And so the, the redemption that Christ brings must likewise be redemption. Sin and death conquer territory. They colonize. Therefore, Jesus must also conquer territory. In pushing back sin and death, he must push it back not only in our hearts, but in our societies. Do we long for this pervasive redemption? Do we hold together the personal and the systemic? Do we long for the gospel to change not just our hearts, but our workplaces, our institutions, our societies, our neighborhoods? Or do we fall off on one side or the other? Jesus won't let us prize these things apart. They go together in his story. The glory that fills our hearts must lead us to strive for justice and to see that justice begin to shape first and foremost in this community. But it also tells us that justice that is not based on the glory of Jesus filling our hearts is hardly justice at all. You know, every empire has a kind of justice, a kind of peace that it enshrines. But St. Augustine looked at the justice of Rome, the greatest empire in the history of the world, and he said, it's but glittering vice. Think of how much bloodshed, he said, is required simply to maintain that peace. But the justice of God is not like that. It does not come at the point of a sword, but when the hearts of the people of God lead the people of God to do what the heart of God longs for. 
That's what justice looks like. That's when you know redemption has come. Tish's second both and of sin is that we are both sinners and sinned against. And so justice, the Lord's justice, looks first and foremost like reconciliation, repentance, mutual forgiveness, restitution, and restoration. Do our hearts long for this pervasive personal and systemic restoration here in our congregation in Pittsburgh, in America? This is a deep challenge for us as a community. Redemption causes us to long for this and pray for this and to begin to be incrementally involved with this. I know it's hard to imagine how we would do this with our busy lives. Where would we fit it in in the midst of parenting and busy work schedules? But my friends, my brothers and sisters, we must begin to have this conversation. You know, what can we let go of? What conversations might we have? What things are we already doing that might be turned to this purpose of comprehensive redemption? We must begin to have these conversations. Because the Lord does not give us the option not to participate in the fullness of this redemption in our community. Mother Tish ended her talk yesterday with a final both and of sin. Sin is both real and it is not the most real thing. The most real thing, the most lasting thing, the most original thing is the glory of Christ and the pervasiveness of his redemption, which reaches as far as the waste of sin has spread. And the wasteland that sin has created is not just in Israel. It has conquered the whole world. As St. Paul says, sin and death that is followed in its wake has universal dominion. But it no longer has dominion over Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, which one day will be ours as well. And the risen, ascended, and exalted servant lives and ever lives to intercede for those on whom he has poured out his spirit. Is that us today? Have we received him in our hearts Paul says that he is not far off, he is very near, and that we can trust him with our hearts and profess him with our lips, and that he will be ours and we will be his. In that profession, there is power and there is glory. He beckons to us. I beg you, if you have not met him yet, meet him today. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Last week after the 11 o'clock service, Dr. Wendy was talking to us about physical healing. And she told this story about how one day in prayer she was asking Jesus, how can he bear to continue to see the wreckage of sin in our lives? How can he bear to see the ongoing dominion that death has over us and its ability to turn to ruin and ash everything good in our lives? How can you stand it? She asked. And she heard this answer. Because I see the end. Because I see the end. That's the last point. Jesus is glorious. He is radiant. He is full of splendor in the end towards which he is bringing us. An end where all the nations are gathered together to God himself. Where all hearts are changed. Where every knee is submitted to him. Is bowed down to him. Where there is not just provisional justice, little signposts of this pervasive healing that will be overrun once again by depravity and selfishness and apathy, but where 
His justice is there in its fullness where his glory is present in such a way with such great heaviness that like the priests in the temple in 2 Chronicles 5, we will not be able to stand because of the gravity and the joy and the weightiness of it. That's the hope that we long for. That's the most real thing. The most beautiful thing about the servant is that he will not only restore the fortunes of Israel, but that he will fold the nations, all of us, into that restoration. He is glorious in how he gives the intimacy with the God of Israel to the nations. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do we know how privileged we are that we have been brought into intimacy with the God of Israel? We've been made part of Israel's story. We've been drawn into Israel's vocation. We've been blessed with the intimate presence of Israel's God. We have dignity because we have been made sons and daughters of the living God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. He was not ashamed to call us in this congregation, at Ascension, in Pittsburgh, in America, in the 21st century, his brothers and sisters. So I pray this morning that you would let the beauty of Christ call to you. Let the servant in his moral beauty call to you. Let his glory fill your heart and be drawn into the pervasiveness of the redemption that he brings. Amen.